We are here in the 11FS offices in WeWork Oldgate in London for episode 56 of Blockchain Insider, the weekly show dedicated to the news of where blockchain meets crypto meets institutions. I'm not alone today. I'm joined by Aaron Stanley from Sweetbridge, who is also a Forbes contributor. How are you doing today, Aaron? Doing well. Thanks for having me. Um, thank you for coming on. And I'm also joined by June Wong from Coindesk. Welcome back, June. Hey, thanks for having me back. Anytime. So before we get started, I just want to say a quick word about our sponsors. Today's episode of Blockchain Insider is brought to you by R3 blockchain. It's not just for FinServ. Tons of industries can reap major benefits. Insurance, healthcare, pharma, automotive, you name it. Discover the potential of blockchain for your business with R3's quarter platform. R3's quarter platform uniquely offers privacy, interoperability, integration, and consensus. Plus, it includes the mission-critical features that every complex business needs, including the world's only blockchain application firewall. The quarter platform, blockchain for every business in every industry. Head over to r3.com for more info. So today we bring you Police Confiscates in Bitcoin, Coinbase Gets Political, and Return of the Bitcoin. So let's get started. Our first story today comes from, of course, Coindesk.com. Police Force Confiscates 295 Bitcoins from Criminal in a UK First. So Surrey Police Force obtained 295 Bitcoins last October after arresting a Latvian man who has since been convicted for money laundering and sentenced to nine years in prison. Police uh, sold the assets for around $1.5 million at the time. Back then, the price of Bitcoin was around $5,000. A local court ruled on Thursday this week that the Surrey Police Force's actions were legitimate as the man in question was found to have benefited from the proceeds of crime, which basically means that um, A, they were allowed to, you know, they were legitimately allowed to sell it in the first place and B, they're allowed to keep a percentage of it. So in this case, 18.8% of the proceeds, which is around £273,000, um, and that'll go towards the police force's operational budget. So the narrative here is, you know, there's a couple of things. One is that the way that it's been reported in a lot of outlets is that Bitcoin bad, the police found it and they seized it. Um, but actually, you know, a lot of people are saying, oh, it's, it's you know, Bitcoin is funding the proceeds of, of, sorry, the proceeds of crime are funding terrorism. Actually not. In this case, the proceeds of crime are funding the police force. So, like, is that a bad thing? Yeah, it might be a welcome thing given all the cuts. Uh, <laughs> but you know, to the Metropolitan Police, to be fair, but uh, not not the not the Surrey Police, which I think is one of the more technologically savvy police forces in the UK. If I'm I not, believe you. <laughs> if I'm not wrong, they were the people who did the first, you know, drone kind of test flight for policing and, and, and things like that. So um, presumably they'll be quite comfortable with dealing or disposing with this stash of Bitcoins. Well, the fact that they found them, knew what they were and decided they were an asset, because the reason that basically the reason that they sold them at the time was because you have to have the assets to present in court to say these are the proceeds of crime. There was some other stuff there, like Rolexes and sapphire necklaces and pink Gucci shoes or something. Um, so, you know, the point is that, that you're absolutely right, Gene. Some police officer recognised what it was and thought, oh, well, this is good. We sell it, we can use it. But I think, you know, it's still kind of tainted. I mean, I don't know, maybe, Aaron, do you think that the press is still reporting this slightly negatively? Do you think the press has a negative approach to, like, talking about Bitcoin? Yeah, it's still it's still definitely fairly common across jurisdictions in the US, UK, or wherever, where the press always goes for these sort of sensationalist headlines of some criminal X, XYZ is using Bitcoin for Z activity and he's police confiscate it and it's and now the world is safe because the police have <laughs> removed a Bitcoin from this nefarious person's hands. And it's and while there's always gonna be instances of these types of things happening, I, I just find it unfortunate that, you know, really sort of five, six years into Bitcoin being, you know, a mainstream thing that people have at least heard of. Uh, even if they don't understand it, these narratives are still very per- pervasive. And looking at this from from kind of a journalist public affairs perspective, I really think that this is the number one uh, sort of public affairs hurdle that must be overcome for this industry to really be um, become like, legitimate. Yeah, we need the press to stop, you know, every time something happens, going at it this way. Yeah, can I just chime in as well? Um, it, it, this whole thing really reminds me of the most uh, notorious case of confiscated Bitcoin, which were then sold to um, to fund law enforcement, which was the Silk Road stash okay. back in 2014. And I remember I wrote a story about that particular one where they're doing the first auction. A lot of people in the Bitcoin world were very happy with that because they said this was proof 
that Bitcoin is fungible, that it doesn't matter wh whether your Bitcoin came from Silk Road or a legal source or an illegal source, you know, it's all Bitcoins are the same and fungible. So for them, it was proof that, you know, the US government was recognizing this. The other weird thing that happened with that first ever auction of Bitcoin by a government was, I wrote a story with this leaked list. This list was leaked from the US Marshal Service, which was doing the auction. And uh, it contained uh, the, the, the peop all the people who had contacted the U.S. Marshals to ask about taking part <laughs> in this auction. Yeah. And they had accidentally sent out the list to an undisclosed person who then forwarded it to me. And it was a very interesting list of people, which included a artist and musician, someone from Yelp, which is <laughs> the, the city guide thing, and names that are well known to us today, like Fred Ersam and, and Barry Silbert. So that was a, you know, kind of just brought to mind that little incident. Yeah, I don't think it's going to go away. I mean, I think the point is, right, Bitcoin can, as we say so often on the show, can be used for good or bad. So long as it's used for bad, the police will confiscate it in the same way they'll confiscate that Rolex or that car. So, you know, it's it's not a story that we're going to we're gonna uh, gonna stop seeing, I think. And but, we haven't but seen can it. Can I just chime before. in with one more point on the money laundering front? Mm -hmm. I mean, whenever this issue comes up in my discussions with, you know, I'm, I'm based in Washington, D.C., so we end up having a lot of conversations with people who are, uh, you know, re are justifiably suspicious of some things. And the point I always try to raise is, yes, yeah, so there is some illegal activity that occurs with uh, these cryptocurrencies and Bitcoin, but what is the, how does that compare to traditional means of money laundering, right? So yes, there may be uh, some money that's being laundered using Bitcoin or used for criminal activity, but how much is, how much money is being, how does that compare to, to the money that's being laundered through real estate or through nail salons or, or through casinos? I mean, there's plenty of, I mean, if you're going to be, if you're a criminal and you're trying to launder money for a variety of reasons, you know, it's, Bitcoin is really probably not the best option for you to be using. There's plenty of existing <laughs> there's legacy, options out there, guys. there's legacy alternatives that are probably more effective. Would so endorse money laundering. Yes. Yes. No, not an endorsement, but just as a, a pragmatic uh, point. Well, you know, talking of Bitcoin, our next story today comes from Forbes.com and Bitcoin just hit $8,000. There are, so basically Bitcoin price has climbed above the $8,000 mark for the first time since mid-May. I mean, I remember writing when it was hitting like the $18,000 mark. So this feels a little bit strange to me. But basically, whenever this happens, people start speculating about what is influencing the price rise. Um, there's a couple of suggested uh, reasons this time around. So apparently they think they're finally going to get approval for a Bitcoin ETF. I mean, that's been rumored for ages. But last week, it came to light that BlackRock was investigating the use of blockchain. But again, BlackRock's been doing that for a few years and it's kind of only rumor. And according to David Solomon, who's the chief executive of Goldman Sachs, the bank's already offering clients publicly traded derivatives tied to Bitcoin. Guys, any any ideas on this? Any further insights into what's causing the jump this time? Yeah, I mean, I would be very surprised if um, the SEC was any closer to approving uh, a Bitcoin ETF than it was you know, I can't remember when the last rejection was, but let's say 12 months, within the last 12 months, uh, nothing has really changed. It, it, it seems highly unlikely. But, you know, then again, the Bitcoin market is one that, you know, you trade on the news and sell on the fact. So uh, it, it, it's like possible that. somebody can, you know, this rumor is goosing the market and making people kind of hopeful that there's there's an ETF on the horizon. Well, I think the big rumor at this point is there is an article floating around in a sort of lesser prominent ICO journal that is saying there's some guy who is an anonymous writer saying that his he has anonymous sources inside the SEC who, who are claiming that there's a 90% chance that the S, that the ETF will get approved. So I I'd never heard of this particular publication before. I've no idea who the guy is, so I, I don't I mean I'm I'm in <laughs> Washington. I I talked to a lot of people. I've haven't heard anything about a 90% approval rating or 90% chance that this would be approved. But I, I think to your point that the it's it's less the, the substance of the claims are less uh, important than the claims themselves That's at this point. Right um, and I do agree that not enough has really changed to move the needle on ETF viability from the SEC's perspective. If you recall when they were uh, when they turned on the Winklevoss ETF uh, proposal, I guess it would be you know a year and a half ago. The big issue was there's a lack of market surveillance on these overseas exchanges. Uh, there's too much market manipulation for consumers to be, uh, or retail investors to be involved in this, and I don't think that's really changed much. I don't, I don't think I, don't, I haven't really seen anybody coming out to really address that issue. And you know, there's the CFTC themselves is probing market manipulation, and they've subpoenaed Bit, Bit, uh, Bitfinex and Tether and all these folks. So I don't think enough has changed materially to see an immediate 
reversal from the SEC on this. But I mean, I could be wrong, but I I don't see it at this point. It'll be interesting to watch that one. I mean, we're, we're all, I mean, the point is that whether it's happening or not, people have ascribed importance to this ETF, this first ETF happening, and a lot of people consider it to be the, a big mark of legitimacy for uh, cryptocurrencies. So it will always spark interest. But again, you know, I actually don't think anybody's really clear what's happening inside the SEC. I don't even think the SEC are that clear. Um, Yeah, well, they've been, they know much more than the crypto community gives them credit for. mm -hmm. Um, I will tell you, I've I've had the opportunity to meet several of the SEC commissioners just over the last few months. And I will tell you, if you you find one of these guys and pin them down at a train station and start asking them questions about crypto, you will find yourself intellectually outgunned pretty quickly. Mm-hmm. So these guys know what they're doing. They're very strategic in how they're going about this. Whether we agree or disagree with how they're going about it is, I guess, another conversation. But they're, they've been very thoughtful and they've been very strategic in how they're approaching this. So Cool. Well, let's see where it goes. Our third story today is from TechCrunch. And apparently crypto's most popular wallet service is getting a mobile app for secure login. So my Ether wallet, which uh, it claims is the most popular crypto wallet service on the internet, is getting a mobile app in a bid to increase security for users. So Mew Connect is an iOS app that allows users to access their wallet through my Ether wallet, but without the need to type in a private key. Um, so instead, they use a QR code, a bit like WhatsApp web. So the code is displayed on the website and then the user scans it with the app and that unlocks the wallet. There are other solutions available similar to this apparently, um, Trezor and Ledger, I'm sure I've said those wrong, Uh, but MuConnect is free. MuConnect feels really weird to say, but MuConnect is free. The MyEtherWallet website receives more than 600,000 visitors per day, so demand for the forthcoming beta is likely to be high. Uh, do you agree with that? June's nodding at me. Yes. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. I think, you know, Mu, Mu is a, um, well, you know, some background, right? So Mu shot to prominence really last summer when ICOs were going crazy and people needed a wallet that could deal with ERC20 tokens and Mu became kind of uh, the de facto record recommended wallet that a lot of these ICO issuers uh, were saying to go and get and use. Uh, as a result, you know, it, it crashed several times. The, I mean, the Ethereum network itself was clogged up on a number of occasions because of all the activity around ICOs. So uh, it's great to see such a popular product mature, kind of introduce these new features and really provide um, the kind of security that, that, that you know, token holders are looking for. And at the, the tail end of that article, it also notes that MyCrypto uh, apparently is also implementing a, a solution that would effectively move away from private keys. I can't remember if they're using the QR code or not. But so basically, like the two largest wallets, crypto wallets, uh, in terms of user base, uh, are both moving away, which... You know, in terms of all, everyone's been saying for the past year or so, like, oh, we need to improve the user experience. The user experience is really weird. This whole idea of just putting in this massive private key is sort of mystifying to people. And it's really encouraging to see folks that are finally implementing, you know, solutions that like, you know, regular people that don't understand cryptography could, you know, use. Yeah, I mean, it's that classic security versus ease, right? So people want it to be easy. And sometimes they will take something slightly less secure, just because it's easier. I mean, I don't know much about it. But to me, it sounds like a really, really good idea. Um, That WhatsApp web user experience, if that's what they've based it on, is incredibly user friendly. So it sounds like a plan. Back to Coindesk for our fourth story. Uh, The world's first bank backed crypto exchange is finally open to the public. So this uh, exchange is called VC Trade. It's been launched by Japanese uh, financial giant SBI Holdings. It's an in-house crypto trading platform. Um, The public launch comes nearly two years after the group first announced it would build the exchange. The platform had received an operating license from Japan's financial watchdog, the FSA, late last year. But the launch was delayed because of CoinCheck's huge hack. So basically what happened was uh, $533 million worth of currency was stolen from CoinCheck and SBI Holdings went back to increase security on their exchange as a result of that. The service is now fully open for users aged from 20 to 70, which is an interesting age bracket, uh, who reside in Japan. As yet, there's no corporate registration service, but we expect that to follow. Thoughts on this, gentlemen? I know Japan is kind of one of the hubs for, for cryptocurrency activity right now, particularly regulated activity. Yeah, I think that's a, it's an encouraging sign to see that, you know, clearly they've put a lot of 
thought and preparation into it with a two-year kind of gestation period uh, and that they finally launched. I think there were a lot of people wondering if and when it would launch, um, and now it has done. Uh, I think that's a good sign. It, it shows that you know whatever the concerns were that were holding up the the launch uh, were were resolved. You know at least to a satisfactory level. So it, it should be super interesting to see. I mean, I would put a develop this development sort of probably on par with something like a like a Bitcoin ETF in terms of how mainstream it's making mm-hmm. the 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 experience of purchasing um, cryptocurrencies yeah I mean SBA holdings um, is is a huge organization they've got lots of banks investment uh, investment managers wealth managers pensions funds under their under their brand so um, they are one of if not the biggest financial organization in Japan so they've definitely put some some money and some effort behind that yeah so I think it's really interesting watching kind of how Japan has gone on this sort of boomerang course as, as far as embracing crypto and embracing exchanges I mean they the, you know, the first country to legalize Bitcoin as, as legal tender or the first major country to do so. They were kind of like handing out licenses to anybody who showed up for a while <laughs> there. And then uh, all of a sudden the coin check thing happened and they, you know, I think the FSA, the regulator there had quite a bit of egg on their face after that. And they, you know, looks like they kind of overcompensated a bit and sort of slapping the exchanges on the wrists and and issuing, you know, um, business improvement orders and things of that nature. From what I understand from some of my friends who are on the ground there, um, there's there's an issue with the FSA in terms of just it's a it's a bureaucracy, right? So you have people that are in a job for two years and then they go and do something else. So the FSA was kind of lacking some of the institutional knowledge to really. I mean, this is not like an easy subject to understand mm-hmm. and just learn on the fly in two years. So I think the FSA was lacking some of the institutional knowledge to really uh, regulate this stuff appropriately or like know what questions to be asking of the exchanges. Like, are you using your, cust- your, you know, your customer deposits to pay operating expenses? Uh, if, if so, you shouldn't do that. So <laughs> So it's really it's encouraging to see that the I mean the exchanges have made a lot of effort to kind of clean themselves up, um, self-regulate, and I mean they they want to be legitimate, don't yeah. they? They genuinely it's a bit like Coinbase. Yeah. They, they actually they're not just doing it for show. I get the feeling that these guys actually do want to prove that they can keep their noses clean and do this in such a way that. I was going to say nobody gets hurt. That's never going to happen. But in such a way that you know there are rules that they can be shown to be following that are they are acting mostly in their customers' best interests. I mean, to go back to the point to the to the Bitcoin price, maybe if we think about the amount of activity happening in Japan today in in crypt, the crypto asset space, right? So not only do you have SBI uh, Line, which is a huge, uh, I think they have well at least several hundred million active mm-hmm. users. Uh, chat app, uh, they just launched their their own crypto exchange uh, this month, um, and uh, just this morning I was talking to a very large Japanese tech investment fund, and they are sniffing around the crypto asset space actively as well. So I think you know the amount of mainstreaming going on in Japan and the amount of institutional money that is um, getting into the space, you know, could be a very a good catalyst for the for the price uh, hike that we've we've seen so far. I mean, really interestingly, on the line thing, they didn't launch it in Japan to start with. So they built it in Japan and they launched it in Singapore. And I I wondered if that was a kind of like that you know, as you say, the Japanese <laughs> regulators are coming down pretty hard, and they kind of went, mm, maybe we'll try this somewhere else first. But as you say, yeah, I mean, I think we've we've known for a while now that Japan is a place to watch when it comes to these things, and uh, this is just you know further further fuel to that fire. Yeah, from we'll have a number of those companies making interesting announcements at uh, Consensus Singapore in September. So was that a plug? You so buy your tickets very, now. Very subtle plug before the price goes up. But yes, a number of those companies will be attending, and um, they'll have. Interesting things to um, to reveal. Sounds good. Okay, so our fifth story today comes from The Verge. Google wants to bring blockchain technology to its cloud services. So Google has announced a partnership with New York-based startup Digital Asset, uh, which makes tools to build blockchain-based apps. So Google wrote in a blog post that its cloud customers can now explore ways they might use DLT frameworks through early access to digital asset software. So Digital Asset, of course, is the Blythe Masters uh, chaired, chaired, is that right word? Anyway, she's the CEO. She's the CEO, yeah. Um, company that's been uh, making quite a lot of headway actually kind of in the operational uh, field. She stated in a blog post that the partnership would provide developers with full stack solutions so they can unleash the potential for web-based innovation in blockchain. A lot of buzzwords there. But what what do we think this means? Is this a good move? Is this kind of PR and marketing? Um, You know, I'm a bit out of my depth when it comes to enterprise blockchain stuff, but um, it does strike me as a little bit of PR and marketing. You know, digital asset has been a little bit quiet in the last 
six months or so. Their primary, I think, project is working with the Australian Stock Exchange mm-hmm, yeah. to uh, to rebuild kind of their internal systems, settlement equity settlement systems. So you know, something like this basically puts them kind of squarely in the public eye again. Working with Google obviously is a big bonus for them, um, and and Google has been a bit of a laggard in terms of offering some of these toolkits uh, in, in the cloud compared to, to Amazon and Microsoft, which have had them for a while. So yeah, a win-win for both of them, I guess. Yeah, well, I think, I think in this instance, you, know, you, just, you have to pay attention to anything that Google does, and you have to pay attention to anything that Blythe Masters does, even if, it's, if it's a, the, the details are somewhat sort of vague or nebulous. And in this instance, I mean, it seems, I mean, it'll be, I, mean, I haven't read the story or, or seen the full kind of briefing on this, but it would be really interesting to see what this means for the pre-blockchain cloud war rivalries among, uh, you know, the Oracles and the Microsofts and the AWSs of the world and the Googles. And now that all these folks, as far as I know, it looks like, I mean, all those other folks have already launched, um, um, you know, blockchain cloud uh, solutions and now Google's getting into the mix as well. So it'll be interesting to see sort of this you know, next generation cloud war fought with blockchains <laughs> instead of, uh, you know, ERPs. And I, <laughs> and I think each cloud provider has gone with like a different enterprise blockchain solution, right? I think it's Microsoft Azure is Enterprise Ethereum Alliance and Amazon, I think, is R3. Um, so it's like, you know, and, and Hyperledger. And so it, it just, it's funny that it seems like camps are being formed, whether that is true or not. It's, I mean, it certainly appears that way. And you can imagine that uh, Google wouldn't want Amazon to know what it was. Do you see what I mean? I can, I can see that it would, they, why they would do it that way. Also a quick note on Google. Uh, we learned, I think, two weeks ago that uh, Sergey Brin, when he showed up at the Richard Branson blockchain retreat in Morocco, Sergey Brin appeared and said that he's been mining Ethereum with his son as a you know, fun activity, a bonding activity. So, so that's, you know, Google getting into crypto yeah i have so many thoughts about that but i'm keeping to myself today Uh, our next story today comes from reuters coinbase bigger the devil has formed a political action committee so a political action committee i I just explain this for our non-us listeners um basically raises money to spend on u.s elections so under american federal law an organization is classified as a pac if it collects donations worth more than a thousand dollars from its members and channels them into campaign funds with the intention of influencing electoral process so basically they raise money and then they give it to the candidate who is most likely to further their agenda is my understanding of this the filing was made public on friday and it revealed that as yet the newly established pac had not raised any money and um, that was of june 30th this year i mean for, i thoughts about the u.s political system aside <laughs> aaron what are your uh, your thoughts on this move well actually one of my first jobs out of college was working for a campaign finance nonprofit group obviously pre-crypto but yeah it's a very there, there's a lot of sort of intricacies of the political um, election financing world in the U.S. that are probably you know a bit, a bit out of depth for this particular podcast. But basically, the reason you start a PAC is because you want to give contributions to candidates who are running for election, right? So it's to either support a candidate or because you want to defeat a certain candidate. Um, there's other types of, there's other means of, of election spending what are, through what are called super PACs, which are basically organizations that are, yet you, you can raise unlimited amounts of money from, but you can't use the, the funds to directly support or oppose anybody. So you can run what are called like issue ads. So I can, you can run a TV ad saying Bitcoin is good and <laughs> politicians who support Bitcoin are good, but you can't and say hint, vote, hint, you nudge, can't nudge. say <laughs> vote for Bitcoin congressional candidate. So with a PAC, it's basically, there's, there's a lot of misconceptions about what PACs are and like who they raise money from and what they do. But basically, uh, for a company-sponsored PAC, you're raising money voluntarily for your employees. Mm-hmm. And it's not corporate treasury funds. You can't, if you're a comp- corporation, you can't use your corporate treasury funds to directly support a political candidate. But if the, the PAC, which is comprised of donations from the, the employee base, you can use those funds and there's still, I mean, it'll be interesting to see, I think, do they, are they trying to raise funds for the pack in crypto or in fiat? Because federally, like uh, Bitcoin crypto contributions are generally OK. You can get away with doing them. The, the, the FEC, which regulates election spending in the U.S., has provided guidance on how to do that. 
Uh, some of the state level election regulators have been a little bit more like kind of dodgy about that. So it'll be interesting to see, are they, is Coinbase just sort of soliciting, you know, Bitcoin contributions that they can hand out? But I think the big, real big takeaway here, um, election, you know, spending minutia aside is is that the crypto industry is, is really realizing that this is a battle that needs to be fought on the political and in the kind of the world of Washington and not so much on the technological front. Like the, the, the crypto world has very much been, I mean, given the origins of many of the people involved in crypto who are um, a lot of libertarian, you know, people that probably that may not even agree that governments are legitimate institutions. But we're getting to the point now where for these ecosystems to actually develop, um, you have to have good standing and good relations with governments. And, you know, love it or hate it, that involves donating money to people who are running for office. So, so it's, 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 a way to inf- it's a way to influence regulation in their favor, I would say. Is that right? Is that basically the crux of the matter here? Yes. Well, and also in the sense that it buys you access. So right? you, okay. So Which, you get the ear of somebody. So, I mean, you can, you can go around into, you know, members of Congress on Capitol Hill all day and be like, hey, Bitcoin's great. But if you also show up and say, hey, here's $10,000 here's, here's <laughs> for your re-election campaign, they'll, they'll, you might have a better chance of convincing them. So it's, <laughs> I mean, it's, unfortunately, it's sort of how the game is played, um, even though it probably shouldn't be like that. There does seem to be a uh, increasing engagement between uh, crypto, I guess the crypto lobby, broadly speaking, and, and, and Washington, right? Because remember a few months ago, I think Politico broke the story that Coin Center, which is a, a think tank in, in D.C., and several prominent VC firms, uh, uh, Union Square Ventures and Andreessen Horowitz, were essentially pitching the, the SEC to reconsider or at least making their case to the SEC that Ether uh, should not be uh, thought of as a, treated as a security. And, you know, based on recent comments, informal comments from the SEC so far, it does appear that they are not going to treat Ether today as a as a security, although the initial crowd sale may be exempt from that, uh, from that uh, classification. So it does look like, you know, these efforts are intensifying and they're producing results. Yeah. yeah. And also, this isn't a part of our news uh, sort of flash, but um, this week, or actually it was last week, the U.S. Chamber of Commerce, which is the largest business organization in the whole world, um, and they're one of probably, I mean, it's definitely the, the largest, like, influencing, you know, most influential lobby group in Washington. I mean, these guys have a lot of political power. They actually came out with a set of uh, fintech policy principles, which included, among other things, you know, regu- more greater regulatory clarity around initial coin offerings, uh, when a token is a security, when it's not a security, calling for greater uh, use of, of of no action letters, which is basically like a promise. The agency promises. We won't, we won't like, trap you. Yeah, in if you do this, yeah. if you do this and you abide by these parameters, we won't come after you, essentially. And also... Um, basically trying to kind of ease some of the regulatory or some of the financial regulatory inertia that has really gummed up a lot of innovation in the U.S. because you have you have 10 different federal agencies that oversee financial services in some form. Uh, in addition, you have the money transmission license, state-by-state money transmission licensing rules. So it, it, it just poses a massive barrier to entry for, and it's not just crypto, it's just fintech generally that are running into these problems. You're seeing a lot of folks just leaving the U.S. or trying to, you know, trying to find jurisdictions where they can launch without having to spend a quarter or a third of their budget just on compliance costs. Yeah, I mean, that's something we talk about a lot over on uh, on the Fintech Insider podcast. Absolutely a problem. So on to our final story today. Um, it's from torrentfreak.com. And the story is about BitTorrent. Uh, so BitTorrent officially confirms it's been acquired by the Tron Foundation. Uh, so BitTorrent Inc., the parent company behind the popular file sharing client uTorrent, has confirmed its acquisition by the Tron Foundation. The Tron Foundation um, has its own cryptocurrency, among other things. With this acquisition, BitTorrent will continue to provide high-quality services for over 100 million users around the world. We believe that joining the Tron network will further enhance BitTorrent and accelerate our mission of creating the Internet of Options, not Rules. Sorry, I just I just love reading quotes like that. Uh, you know, to me, this is sort of more crypto M&A, really. Lots of mergers and acquisitions, and I think we probably should have expected this given how many players there are out there right now. Um, BitTorrent, as I was saying earlier, was something I was like, did you use that to share music? And everybody goes, yeah, 30 years ago, Sarah. But yeah, I think the main point here is, you know, we're seeing companies acquire each other, merging, trying to sort of get some clout that way. Um, I wonder if it's kind of like this is an acquihire as well, trying to get hold of some, some people and some technology. Yeah, I think it's, uh... 
uh, it's a, a very fitting union actually, because if any one of you have have used uh, BitTorrent in the past, you remember it was really fiddly, very hard to configure, hard to set up, and always a mystery whether it would work or not. Which is a lot like sending a Bitcoin transaction today. <laughs> um, so really, you know, a, a great fit on that front. You know, kind of crazy UX. Um, but then also, I think a little bit ironic because um, I think Nathaniel Popper of the New York Times was making this point on Twitter uh, this week, and he was saying, you know, people always say cryptocurrencies are like, you know, the dawn of the internet, right? And it's gonna you're gonna build all this amazing stuff on top of it. But what if actually it's more like um, the days of BitTorrent? And BitTorrent at one point accounted for over 80% of global web traffic. Today, it's something like 20 or 15%. So it was a very promising technology. It caught on for a period of time, and then it went away. So um, I think this throws up some of those um, kind of parallels and questions, really. And this whole issue of, of crypto M&A I've, is something I've found quite fascinating. I, I was first started looking into this back when I was with Coindesk uh, late last year. And I've been just just trying to ask the question of like, how would does that even work? Like I'm acquiring a company in tokens that, you know, assuming that you're paying, you're acquiring the company with tokens, how does that even, how like the logistics of that even work? Like how does some of the, you know, the, the dispute resolution happen if, uh, you know, something doesn't go right? Or, I mean, M&A is like in the real world or, you know, the, you know, physical non-crypto world is a huge business. It's all sorts of, you know, all sorts of intermediaries and lawyers and financial folks and accountants involved in, in, in reconciling all these these deals. And, and striking these deals. So I'm, I'm just really fascinated to learn more about like how does this work in a crypto context where the currency you're using may or may not be you know, mm. a fiat currency. I'm sure we'll get the details because I'm sure we will have to get the details under sort of SEC yeah. filings and whoever's regulating. But you're absolutely right. Kind of like one X is acquired Y is interesting, but how X is acquired Y is even more interesting. And I think it also shows just that the space is maturing a bit that there's, you know, we've had this Cambrian explosion of ICOs and, and blockchain platforms and, and folks doing this, that and the other thing. But at the end of the day, there's there needs to be a rationalization and there needs to be uh, a consolidation, and um, even if it's just folks buying out their competition in some way or another, it's it's. I think it's a sign. It's an encouraging sign that 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 the market is maturing, and um, and that companies are thinking ahead about what's the what's sort of the long term path here towards real you know mainstream viability. Great. Yeah, no, absolutely. I completely agree. It's always a good sign in my mind when you see consolidation, even if it's not for every player in the industry. Some stories we didn't have time to cover. Uh, there is one from CNN.com, which was that the Chinese authorities shut down illegal mining in autonomous region. Another from Coindesk. Another one billion blockchain fund to launch with government backing. And a third from Coindesk, which is that the International Data Corporation report blockchain spending to hit nearly 12 billion by 2023. I promise you that wasn't rigged, June. They really were the most interesting stories this week. So our final segment today is the Tweet of the Week. Tweet, 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 tweet. It's the Tweet of the Week. week. So this week it comes from uh, at Smarterium TV and it reads, Bitcoin futures average daily volume on CME increased by 93% in Q2. So is this gaining momentum? Is this because it was quite small to start with and it's suddenly taken off? Uh, what, what do we think? Is this, is this significant, basically? Or is this kind of like, yeah, you'd expect that? I mean, th- I mean, it's a good headline. It's a, it's a, it definitely catches <laughs> your attention. And I'm, I'm not a, a you know, crypto futures guy, uh, but it, it strikes me as like we're not at the point in the, in the crypto futures world where the law of large numbers really applies yet. So some of these, these numbers that get thrown around and are there may it may be more sort of flash than substance yeah. to some of these things if you go so, from one to two you've gained 100 percent. right right, right. <laughs> it's, it's, uh, it's progress i mean I, I mean i think this was this the, the futures um aspect was really what people were kind of banking around you know six months ago december of last year like this is what's going to really kind of bring you know some legitimacy to the market and, and kind of smoothen out some of the volatility um and maybe it maybe it has maybe that's been a role of uh, that's been one of the reasons that we've seen that you know the price declines that we've seen, but I, I still think, just given the small volumes of trading that were initially happening in the first quarter, I'm not really sure that we've hit the point where futures trading is really having like a, a, a you know a sizable, significant impact on the price of Bitcoin. Yeah, I agree. It's uh, we're starting from a small base. Uh, it's good that it's gaining traction. I think for crypto assets and Bitcoin specifically to to be widely kind of traded, uh, you you need a healthy 
uh, futures market. So um, it's you know all all signs are are pointing upwards, really. Yeah, and I, I mean I hope it continues to. to I mean I think this will be one of the real a, a further developed futures market will be one of the factors that ultimately ends up leading to more institutional you know kind of high net worth folks coming into the space because. The crypto markets just really lack the infrastructure that traditional financial markets do, as far as you know, hedging risk and and that type of thing. So having even if even if the the, the futures numbers are the, the volumes are still relatively small, I think having that ecosystem develop and having that infrastructure built up is, I mean, it's only it only can be a positive thing as far as as the overall legitimacy of. Of, uh, of this market. Well, thank you both of my guests for joining me. That's not all, folks. We're leaving you with the dulcet tones of Colin G. Platt, who had a great chat with Circle CMO Marik Flamen, who's also going to be on an After Dark show this evening. I'm here with Marik Flamel, the European MD for Circle, as well as the CMO, recently promoted. Thank you very much for coming on. Can you tell us a bit about what you do and what Circle does? So Circle is a company that was founded in 2013. Uh, and what we believe in at Circle is tokenization of everything. So basically, we create products leveraging blockchain technology to enable people to create and share value the same way you can actually share an email or an image or any of the assets that we're used to share online and on the internet. Today we have four different products. So uh, our first product is called Circle Pay. It's an app that enables anyone to actually send and receive fiat money around 29 countries, uh, the EA zone and then the US. And say, uh, for example, you and I go out for a beer, you pay for the beer, I want to reimburse you, I can actually do that with Circle Pay very seamlessly. Our second product is called Circle Invest. It's a product that is mainly designed for retail and consumers who want to invest in cryptocurrencies. Uh, at the moment, only available in the US, but think about it as like people who'd be interested in thinking, oh, um, there is a new class of asset that is out there. How can I actually invest in that? That's what we enable for people uh, with Circle Invest. We recently acquired uh, Poloniex, which is a crypto to crypto exchange. Um, and so that's our third product. And with that vision, what we want to bring on Poloniex is actually what are the tokens that should be listed on Poloniex? What is actually the right framework, the right uh, legal entities, and the right, uh, yeah, I would say the right regulatory framework that needs to be adapted. Uh, for Polonex to strive. And our last product is called Circle Trade. Circle Trade is one of the largest, if not the largest, crypto trading desk in the world. So we enable basically liquidity for the rest of the ecosystem. Um, say, uh, large financial institutions, hedge funds, family funds who actually want to start investing in crypto would come to us and we have the ability to actually help provide a lot of those liquidities. We've announced recently that we're working on a project that uh, we think is extremely exciting for the industry. It's a stable coin. Uh, which will be coined USDC, um, USD and C for Circle. Uh, and basically that stable coin first fully backed one for one with the US dollar uh, is something that can able to have US dollar on the blockchain. And that's very powerful for crypto exchanges out there, but just generally, more broadly speaking, for the overall ecosystem. The first verifiably backed by exactly, US dollar. The, exactly. That's, that's what we want to do, right? We want to have something that is verified, backed. Uh, it's, it's built on our open source framework center. Uh, and what we want to do is to have a, vision, a version that is actually fully auditable, that is fully one for one. Can you talk to us a bit about, let's start with the USDC, and why is that actually important in the market, in your opinion? Yeah, in our opinion, it's actually extremely important. So I think there's a couple of projects that have actually have tried to do that, right? Um, not necessarily, uh, you know, super successfully or, or not with the level of transparency that actually is needed. Why we believe it's super important is that in the world of cryptocurrencies, there are different assets class that are out there. Um, and a lot of the time, actually going back to something that is stable and in a currency that we actually know is extremely important. Let's take the example of, for example, a crypto exchange. Right now, it's actually not necessarily always possible to have fiat on ramp on a crypto exchange. But if you had a stable coin that is fully backed with uh, you know, a fiat currency, you could actually imagine having that and therefore flow liquidity much more easily and actually transparently and much faster. That's a really important point, especially given kind of the fragmentation of the market. You have Poloniex, which is one of the larger ones, but it's not the only one in the space. Exactly. Yeah, absolutely. And you could imagine actually having that USDC on like many different exchanges, but also imagine having that USDC on, for example, a circle invest or circle pay. And then you can really imagine having on circle pay uh, people able to send uh, USDC across borders and in different countries. So I understand as a retail um, investor or trader in cryptocurrencies why I might want to use USDC. Is there any value for an institutional investor or maybe an institution itself? Yeah, definitely. I mean, for an institution in itself, it's the same. It's having basically a faster, cheaper way to go from crypto to a world that you know, which is fiat currency, right? At the end of the day, I mean, if we really simplify 
having a stable coin is also just making a crypto fiat currency, right? So money is just data and it's just enabling that transformation and having that in a crypto fashion, which then means in a technical term that it becomes ERC20 compatible and then it's actually movable on any of the open source platform. Um, so for even for uh, very large institutional uh, players, it means having a token that can then uh, much more fluidly actually move uh, with different other assets. So it, moving these things onto ERC20 and I guess Ethereum is kind of the backbone of that. How do you manage some of the risks like if the network were to be hacked or if there was a 51% attack or uh, a fork and you all of a sudden have USDCC and USDC? <laughs> You know, attacks and all of that are, you know, something that obviously we look at. But what we look at is more like the interoperability of different chains. So say today, um, you know, with Ethereum and ERC20, that's one of the chain. But maybe tomorrow there'll be another chain. Actually, what we need to look at is like the, the compatibility of those different chains over time, right? Um, so I think as the rest of the ecosystem, we're also trying to find out what are those layers of compatibility that are going to happen over time and how can we make sure that indeed if, you are, if USDC is built on Ethereum and if something else happened, like how can we actually keep all of that super compatible? And that's a super important thing. Can yeah. I shift us to regulations in Poloniex specifically? So that's come on. Are, is that keeping the same brand Poloniex or are you changing So at name? the moment we're keeping the same brand Poloniex. We do have a lot of work on that platform. Uh, we've done that less than a couple of months ago. A lot of work is needed on the customer support side of things. We're actually also working on framework for tokens, right? You know, in our way, in, in our vision, actually, we believe that different tokens are different things. And a token can be, uh, it can be a currency, it can be a security, it can be an asset. It can, a token can start being something at the beginning of its life and then evolve into something else over time. Tokens being different things mean that actually uh, there is different uh, regulatory and legal framework that exists around those tokens. So that's one first thing is like helping one of the things we're working on is actually figuring out what token is what, but also what token should be listed. Right? I think it's super important to have quality projects and projects that are of real value and projects that actually will move the entire ecosystem forward. And that's a really important point because I know Poloniex was kind of colloquially known as a, a platform that listed a wide variety of tokens previously. Have you publicly talked about mass delistings, or is that something where you say we'd rather go remediation of tokens? Or? So what we, yeah, what we want to do is obviously uh, make Poloniex a fully uh, regulatory approved uh, platform, right? And so it means indeed looking at that. We haven't publicly talked about that, but part of our token framework is indeed looking at that, right? What should be what should be listed as new tokens, but also what might have to be delisted because of the regulatory framework that are around. And is there a, a kind of that third path of saying, well, this token? may have not been allowed inside of this for whatever reason, but perhaps if they do X, Y, Z, it could be going forward. They could be, but then it's also all about like the attractivity of that project, right? So for a token to uh, to remain, there needs to be a certain ecosystem that is around it. So I think it's not only necessarily about purely the regulatory framework, but also like, you know, the teams that are behind it, the quality of the project and so on and so forth. And can you talk about how you interact with kind of the other players? Because I know Gemini and Coinbase are, are well known for putting some of these frameworks out there. Is that something that you're interacting with them on? or is this something you go a different way? Well, actually, you know, we participate in a lot of um, working groups and, and uh, one of the working groups who is participating uh, is GDF, which is actually the working group that has pinned off uh, by, by you guys, which I think is of spectacular quality, but it's also making sure that the entire ecosystem can come in and actually uh, figure out, you know, what token is what and who are the key players and therefore what regulatory framework should be adapted around that. There are a lot of super, you know, companies, as the one you've mentioned, and super uh, very talented people who are trying to figure that out together. Um, there are other projects like the Brooklyn Project, who is another one. So it will be interesting to see, I think, in the next, let's say, three to six to nine months, what is actually the overall infrastructure and the overall regulatory landscape that is coming out of that. I think one of the challenges will be the fact that if we think of it in too many small silos and in too many independent countries, this is not going to go anywhere, right? And one of the key things is that most of this technology are actually completely border agnostic and actually having something that you know, touches uh, the SEC, but also the FCA, but also like the French regulators and also like the players who are in the Spanish ecosystem and so on and so forth is actually extremely important. So we are trying to participate in the groups that we believe are 
uh, most impactful and are really trying to come up with a framework um, and, and with something that will be digestible and implementable by regulators. And I know uh, we speak for us, we really like that approach. want to talk about your, your brokerage business, uh, the OTC business. Um, I know this is something we've heard a lot about quite recently. Uh, this was something that people didn't really even realize, Circle did until fairly recently. But it is a massive business and it is something that, you know, as an institutional trader in cryptocurrencies, it was kind of almost prerequisite in order to get involved. What are you seeing with that business? How has it grown? Where did it start? Why did it start? Yeah, maybe let's start with why did it start, which I think you're absolutely right. Like few people actually realized the size of the business and actually it was something that Circle was doing. So when we started um, Circle, the first application was Circle Pay and it was a Bitcoin wallet and you could send, receive Bitcoin across the world. And actually then we wanted to, the, the vision was, okay, people want to send and receive money, like, you know, money that they understand. And then we said, okay, how can we bring on US dollar and pound on that platform? Platform, which means being regulated and actually being able to have US dollar and Bitcoin and pound and euro and so on and so forth. And what we saw on that was very interesting. We actually saw two different, completely different behavior. One was, yes, you and I go out for a beer and it's in pounds. And so we understand pounds and we can repay each other in pounds. But another behavior was actually, I see Bitcoin as, a, as an asset class and I want to invest in that and hold that asset class, which is completely different and not the first intended purpose of Circle Pay. Having built Circle Pay, what we had to build was basically Circle Trade for ourselves to be able to liquidate between pound and euro and dollar and so on and so forth. So we had built the entire infrastructure to be able to do that. And so with the first version of Circle Pay, we thought, okay, there are two different applications for end consumers that need to exist there. Hence, Circle Invest, Circle Pay. And then we also saw, okay, circle trade is actually something that a lot of institutions were coming to us and saying, hang on, actually, can you help us do that? I said, okay, there's their very large institution uh, business that can be built. Um, so circle trade is completely the opposite spectrum of, for example, um, circle invest. Uh, the minimum entry ticket is $250,000. And what we've seen happen with that business over time is one, the absolutely extreme growth that has gone through that, but also two, the type of different players that are coming in, right? Um, today, being at this conference, I think it's absolutely mind-blowing to see the level of institutional investment that is going in that, the level of wanting to understand actually what is the technology, what are the projects that actually are interesting, what are actually the asset class that are coming out of that in which uh, people should be investing. So yeah, I think it's you know something that as any startup, and as we like to say, we know the top of the mountain and where we're going, which is like the world will be tokenized. And then it's figuring out with that, what are the different products that are needed uh, for both super retail, like very small retail consumers, but also very large financial institutions. And can I just un unpack one of the things you said in there? We're at this BAI conference in London. Lots of institutional investors here. Are you actually seeing hedge funds or other types of institutions actually putting large sums of money in this? Market? Absolutely. And I think, you know, actually what's interesting is that there's a very wide difference from geographies. And I think, you know, Asia has been on that with institutional investors and hedge funds and family funds for actually a while. Um, same in the U.S. And it seems that, you know, in Europe, it's starting to happen. And finally, right. And, and you're right. The type of, of people that we see here today are definitely in that. There are more and more places where um, there is a huge interest in that. Switzerland is another place where you, we see that more and more happen. So it's absolutely happening. Yes. And when you start to talk to some of these funds that are saying, I want to allocate to Bitcoin or to Ether or to whatever it is, do they talk to you about what their investment thesis? Is this a replacement for gold? Is this a play on a payment supply? Is this, you know, uh, an interesting venture kind of? Hugely depends, right? It, it really varies a lot. I mean, um, you could have players who come in and who actually have participated in a project and therefore want to liquidate to go back into dollars, right? So that's, that could be one of the play. You could have actually other players who see that as actually, as you said, like uh, a place to start diversifying a portfolio as a replacement, for example, for gold or for other assets that are out there. So we see a, a huge variety. We also see, for example, um, universities that might be paid in Bitcoin and that at some point need to pay their professors back into US dollar. Uh, we see very large you know, projects that are coming that have done an ICO that want to liquidate a small part to pay sandwiches and offices. So it's really a wide range, which I think is also super interesting, like the different levels of investments that are going through, but also the different needs for liquidity that therefore are coming from. Would it be too much to say we're kind of at the, we're getting to the point in cryptocurrencies where it, it's not the, is this going to become an asset class, but it is an asset class and it's 
when is everybody going to catch up or am I too far along that curve? Oh, I think you might actually not be too far along. I think it's, it is an asset class. Uh, I think it's more about finding out within this asset class what, are, what asset is what. Uh, and I think it's still, you know, if we talk about are we yet at a mainstream moment, I think we're still very far from it, right? If I look at, uh, and I talk mainstream, mainstream for institutions and mainstream for like, you know, uh, you and I, for example. Two very different things. Which is two very different yeah. things, right? But I think there is a mainstream moment in both, right? And I think for, even for institutions, we are, we're not there yet. We're starting to hear more and more about people who are interested, but who first want, and which is absolutely the right thing, is first want to really understand what is it? What's the technology under that? What are the projects? What are the interesting things to keep an eye on? Um, and on the other side of the spectrum, you have, you know, for mainstream consumers, uh, it will never be about technology. It will be about, like, does this really solve a problem for me today? And actually, is it doing that in a cheaper, better, faster way? I think we're still far from mainstream for both. Um, and it's good to see, like, you know, a vibe like here and, and with so many people who are engaged. Um, but there is still so many more that the markets can be doing. Oh, absolutely. Between now and the next six or 12 months, what is kind of the we're working or we're not working within the cryptocurrency space and particularly within Circle and particularly within Europe? What are kind of your milestones? Yeah, so I think in terms of, you know, uh, let's start maybe with the industry. I think in the industry, what's going to be super important regulation critical i think we'll see progress on that you know key projects that keep constantly uh, coming up with like uh, you know mainstream usage i think we'll keep seeing a lot of that happen uh, from a circle perspective, uh, you know, we, we are extremely focused on, uh, obviously, Poloniex. How can we make that, you know, the, the version 2.0 platform that we want to bring uh, to end users? Uh, keeping to grow Circle Trade, uh, our OTC crypto trading desk, super important. From a European perspective, um, Circle Invest at the moment is only in the U.S. We definitely want to bring that here. Um, and the last project that will come this summer is our stablecoin USDC. Um, so that will be a major milestone for, for Circle and for the rest of the industry. And I have to ask you, because we are in, we are in London, you're ahead of Europe. There's lots of people that listen to this show that are bankers or have banking background or investment background. Are you hiring people with that kind of background? <laughs> we definitely are. Um, <laughs> absolutely. No, we are, we are definitely, I mean, uh, finding the right talent that is actually coming from, you know, it can be a, back, a banking background, but it can also be, a, a, you know, just technology background. I think... In that space, it's really about curiosity and wanting to understand that space, right? And so um, we look for, we definitely look for a lot of people um, and having the right curiosity and, and actually wanting to go and create, either build products or actually get those products to market, super important. You know, in Europe, we're looking for business development people that can actually help us grow our trade business, uh, that can also help us grow our Poloniex business. Uh, we're also looking for people who can actually, you know, get the UK market and the Europe uh, markets, generally speaking, uh, further away. So yes, we are. And if anyone listening out there is looking for something, don't hesitate to get in touch. Great. Well, thank you very much. We're big fans of you guys on the show and uh, we wish you all the best. Thank you for coming on. Just before we go, 11FS, the company that brings you this podcast, are a challenger agency who help banks, asset managers, FMIs, and anyone with a challenge in blockchain or DLT to achieve more. If you want to understand how to commercialise blockchain projects or just have a speaker for your next event, we hope that you'll get in touch. Hit up our website, 11FS.com, to find out more. If you're interested in joining us, 11FS.com slash careers is a place you should go to. Have a look and see if there's a vacancy that fits you. So thank you very much once again to my guests this week. Uh, where can people find out more about you, June? Um, Coindesk.com, uh, which is my employer, and on Twitter, at June, E-N-I-A-N. Perfect. And Aaron, how about you? So I'm on Twitter at Aaron W. Stanley. Perfect. Uh, I also have to thank the amazing production team here at 11FS, our producers, Patrick Brescia and Laura Watkins, and Holly Blacksill, our editor. Thank you so much for listening. If you like what you've heard, subscribe to our podcast, leave us a review on iTunes. Those reviews do help us so, so much, and spread the word. Tell all your friends and colleagues to listen to. We will have more Blockchain Insider next week. Goodbye. Goodbye.